Genesis 22, 1 through 19. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Isaac, excuse me, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and excuse me, sorry, let me back up. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac, and he took his hand, he took in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both went, and so they both together went up. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which, of which God had told him, Abraham built there an altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your, your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So how many of you have actually read that before? Have read that account? Several of you. I wonder if you are like me. Is that anytime I read it, all I can say is, wow. Wow, what faith Abraham must have had. Here he is going up this mountain. And if all you read was this part, what you wouldn't know is that this is indeed his only son, the son of promise, the one that God has said, I'm going to bless you through this son. And Abraham has walked up this mountain with him, prepared to sacrifice his son. He must have had some incredible, incredible faith. I find myself, and I don't know about you, but saying, well, I could never be like that. There is no way that I could ever have that kind of faith. Well, what if I told you that you do, in fact, have that kind of faith? 
Sure, you don't have it, maybe not in the measure that Abraham had at that moment in his life, but the source of Abraham's faith is the source of our faith. So therefore, you actually do have the same faith that Abraham has. It just may be in a different measure. Now, we live in a world that is driven by social media. And because of that, it's easy to look at those lives that you see on Facebook or wherever it is that you spend your time and think those people have such exciting lives. I mean, their lives are so much better, so much more fun. I mean, every time I look up, they're sitting in front of a big hamburger. I don't know what's up with taking pictures of hamburgers, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's okay. If, if you do, I'm not, I mean, to be offensive, but I'm just saying <laughs> that don't show me a picture of, I won't show you a picture of anything that I wouldn't bring into your, into the, your house and show you. And I would never come into your home with a book full of pictures of hamburgers. <laughs> so, but if that's your thing, that's okay. But you look at these pictures and you think, man, they must have exciting lives. But the reality is, it is always a snapshot in time. And what we see in this account of Abraham is a snapshot in time. I would propose that there was a time in Abraham's life when he would not have responded the way he responded. That he had to grow in faith. To ever be able to respond the way we see him there. And we too have to grow in faith in our relationship with Christ. So what I want to do today is I want to focus with the time we have on the life of Abraham. I want to, we're going to look at a sizable portion of his life. It is going to be like sports center highlights. So, it, so I would encourage you. To go and spend some time. There is so many chapters in Genesis committed to Abraham. There must be a reason. And I would encourage you to spend some time reading it over and over and over again. Because I've learned something over the last several years. Is that if I read the same scriptures over and over again. The things I understand in time number five is so much different than what I understood the first time I went through. So I would encourage you to spend some time looking at the life of Abraham. But today I'm going to give you, as I said, I'm going to give you some, 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 uh, some highlights from his life. And my goal is basically to answer three questions. One is, who is Abraham? How did he become a man of great faith? And what are the parallels between his life of faith and our life of faith? So those are the three questions I want to answer. I will tell you that as we go through today, there's going to be five different times that I'm going to pause and say, this is something I want you to remember. So I would ask if you're taking notes to jot it down. If you've got a great memory, I don't. Keep it in mind because it'll come up later when we get to the end. So, amen? And so I should tell you, because I should have given you a warning. So when I say amen, you say amen. Amen? amen. All right, good. All right, amen? amen? All right, let's do it. Okay. So who is Abraham? We first get introduced to him in Genesis, uh, the 11th chapter of Genesis, verse 26. It is right after the account of the Tower of Babel. You will recall, if you go there and look, you'll see that there is a listing of, of Shem's, and he's one of the sons of Abraham, a listing of his descendants. And in verse, um, in verse 26, it says, And Terah had lived 70 years. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And these were the three sons of, these were the three sons of Terah. Now, I do want to say this as we go through today, 
there are times where God is referring to him as Abram, and there's times where he's going to refer to him as Abraham. I'm going to say Abraham every time, so just be aware of that, so it doesn't cause any confusion. But I do realize it is in the 17th chapter of Genesis that God actually changes Abraham's name. Verses 3 through 5, it says, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So again, I'm going to refer to him as Abraham throughout, but let's talk a little bit about what we know about him. One is he was from Ur of the Chaldeans. So there's a lot of debate. There has been a lot of debate about where this place was actually located. But everything seems to point to the fact that it was a city of pretty great importance. Not only importance, but there was plenty of pasture land. So you keep in mind, these are shepherds. So it's a place where it's very fertile and a place where there's plenty of land um, for their animals. Like many cities of importance, Ur was also a place of great idolatry. So there were lots of what we'd call a polytheistic society in that the society would worship multiple gods. Abraham and his family were also idol worshipers. We know this, first of all, based on where they live. But secondly, if you look at Joshua 24, verses, um, verse 2, Joshua says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we know that it was from great darkness that God called Abraham. Which, by the way, is the first thing I want you to remember. That God called him from darkness into light. So when we go back and talk about at the end about the parallels, one of those is going to be that God called Abraham from darkness into light. Amen? Now let's talk about how he became a man of great faith. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. All right. So Abraham's journey. One thing I want to say at the outset here is that Abraham's journey of faith was um, was included both times of obedience and times of disobedience. There are times when he took action simply because he heard God's voice. And there are other times where you're going to see that Abraham took matters into his own hands. So his journey for all of that greatness, which is why that snapshot in time is, is, is important to remember as a snapshot, that what we see in that chapter is not what we see the, at the very beginning. That there's a journey through of faith that he walks through. And you're going to see that he has times where he is, as I said, there's times where he appears to do whatever God says and other times where he just takes matters into his own hand. Probably doesn't sound familiar to you. It does sound familiar. It does sound familiar to me. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, man, Abraham. Wow. I'm not like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you understand what I'm talking about. Amen. 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 So Genesis 12, one through four. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, I, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told, had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So there are a few things about this that I want to point out. Um, in terms of this, if you look at that very first verse where he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The original audience that Moses was writing to would have understood how significant that call was. 
in our 20th century world, we can miss this because we live in a world where children are supposed to leave their parents' house and go make their own way. I've got a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old at the house, and they can't wait to get out on their own. You wouldn't know it from their bank account, but they can't wait. <laughs> you can't, they can't wait to get out on their own. So we're raised in a society where children are supposed to, you, the whole, from the moment they're coming up, my mother, well, my mother's here today. I'm going to share this story. She says she doesn't remember any of these stories, but so this is what she said to me. When you graduate from high school, you can get a job, you can go to the military, you go to college, but you're getting out of here. <laughs> so I came up knowing that you're supposed to go out. Well, in Abraham's time, that was not the case. You see, for him to leave his home, to leave his family, to leave his land, meant to give up his security. It meant to give up his future. It meant that he was putting everything in God's hands. And I'm going to leave everything else behind. And I'm going to trust that this land you say you're taking me to is worth my following you. He was giving up everything in that command, if he followed that command. And he did it. He did it. He heard the voice of God and he went forward. So, granted, keep in mind that, God, that Abraham was told that he was going to another land and, that, and he was acting on this promise. But his acting on this promise, what's important to remember here, is that he was sacrificing the seen for the unseen. So he's sacrificing what he can see for something that he's being promised that he can't yet see. Another thing I want you to remember about Abraham today, that he sacrificed the seen for the unseen. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now, returning to that verse, um, um, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, there's several things that God promised in there that I want to point out. One is he did promise that there would be land, that I'm taking you to a land. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation and make your name great, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, it's important to remember, again, he doesn't have any children right now. So when he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, where are all of these kids going to come? Again, willing to walk away from what he can see, the seen, to work his way toward what he cannot see, or the unseen. But embedded in those verses is another thing that I think is really beautiful. And that is, in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, Again, in the 20th century, this may not mean anything, but back then it meant a lot. You see, it was customary for kings to, when they were protecting the people to say, your friends are my friends, your enemies are my enemies. So I'm on your side. I am, so when Abraham hears that, he hears God saying, I am your friend. Now let's take it a step further because it's even more beautiful than that. In Abraham's society, gods didn't make friends with people. No, you gave sacrifices to the gods. You bribed the gods. Our God is separating himself from every other God in the land. He says, your friends will be my friends. Because he's now saying, I am going to have a personal relationship with you. Something that would have been completely foreign to Abraham or anyone around him, that there is a God who wants to have a personal relationship with me. Sound familiar? And nothing's changed. 
God wants, desires to have a personal relationship with those of us who are serving him. Amen. It's beautiful. That's why I didn't want to pass that up. So move on. So the promise of Abraham, so, so excuse me, so on the promise of Abraham, a promise of God, Abraham takes his wife, his nephew Lot, his servants, slaves, heads, and heads out to Canaan, again, sacrificing the scene for the unseen. Round verse 6 and 7, we read these words, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moray. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So again, he explains that this land that I just walked you into, keep in mind, Abraham has given up all of his land. He's given up his inheritance. And now he is moving into another land. And God says, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. I don't have any children yet, but I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And oh, by the way, I know that the Canaanites are in the land, but we're going to take care of them too. Now, I, I mean, the scripture doesn't say it, but I can't imagine what that's like, right? I'm looking at this room and I got about 100, 200 people with me and we're going to take on all the Canaanites. Yeah. What faith he must have had to go on this journey, to walk away from what he could see towards something that he could not yet see. But you recall that I said there were times when he acted as on the promise of God, and there's other times when he took matters into his own hand. So if you would, look at verses 10 through 13 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. I sure appreciate him complimenting her before he says this. You know, <laughs> I know you are fine, but here's what I need you to do, right? He says, the Egyptians will see you and they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So here's the question. Didn't Abraham leave everything behind solely on the promise of God? Didn't God promise him a great name? Didn't God promise land for his offspring? Did he not say that all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you? That your enemies will be my enemies? Nevertheless, he asked her to lie. Why? I mean, why the rules? I mean, if, if God says that your enemies are my enemies and Pharaoh tries to kill me, wouldn't God intervene? Does the fact that Pharaoh is powerful negate the promise of God? Why would Abraham, this man of great faith, tell his wife to lie? I think there's a very simple reason. Because Abraham's walk was imperfect. Abraham's walk was imperfect. It was not a straight line. It is, if you read the real details, it's a whole lot of crooks in that lot. For those of you old enough to know what a lot is. But anyway, we'll move on. So there's a whole lot of crooks in that lot to get into the place where he gets to. His walk was imperfect, which is the next thing I want you to remember about Abraham. His walk was imperfect. So here's what happens. He does get her to lie. They follow through on the ruse. And as he predicted, Pharaoh takes him in. Pharaoh's servants see her and tell Pharaoh he takes her in to be his own. 
And God afflicts Pharaoh, his family, his servants, so much so that the next morning, Pharaoh gets up and says, I don't know why you lie to me, but she is not your sister. <laughs> and you need to go. And oh, by the way, let me give you some stuff to take, to take with you. Remember? Because we're talking about a society that had to bribe the gods. So whoever this God is of yours who has afflicted me, let me show him how much I'm going to take care of you. And he does. And he leaves. And he moves on. Truly, Abraham's walk was imperfect. Amen? So then we come on this interesting scene in the next two chapters where we see Abraham's growth in grace. I want to set the story, these two stories up real quickly, and I'm going to go through them fast. But I want to set them up by reminding you that Abraham has given up his inheritance. And he has none yet other than God's promise that he will have one. So the first incident happens in the 13th chapter when Abraham, who has his nephew Lot with him, and the, the land is not large enough. Well, it is large enough for them to get along, but because we're human beings, they can't get along. So the people of <laughs> so, so the people of Lot's people and Abraham's people are all arguing with one another. And Lot goes, I mean, excuse me, Abraham goes to Lot and says, look, we're kinfolk and there's no reason for us to be fighting, right? Now, our people are fighting. So here's what I can do. Now, keep in mind, Abraham has dibs. So he can say, let me stay back before I step off the stage. Because that will not be pretty. <laughs> so Abraham has dibs. So he actually can say, give me this land and you take that land. And there's nothing that Lot can do about that. Because Abraham's in charge. But he doesn't. He says, you pick the land you want and I'll take whatever is left. How is he doing that? Because he's trusting God. Because he's growing in his faith and his trust in God. The same Abraham who just told his wife to lie a second ago or a chapter ago is now standing here with Lot willing to let him take the best of the land. And I bet you can't guess which land Lot took. The best of the land. He looked out and saw that fertile land down towards Sodom. And he said, this is mine. But God is so good. Because right after that, right after that, God takes Abraham and says, I want you to walk the breadth of the land, north, south, east, and west. It's all going to be yours. I am going to bless you and make your name great. He does what? God reminds him of the promise that has been made. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but have you ever felt your faith faltering or doubts entering your mind? And something happens and God just reminds you who he is. There's a scripture in Psalms that says he considers my frame and he remembers that I am dust. Yeah, he knows exactly when to step in. And this is what he does for Abraham. The second incident occurs in the next chapter. What I call this second sort of unselfish act happens in the next in the next chapter, chapter 14. And basically what happens in chapter 14 is that a group of kings come together and they're going to go now do battle against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Keep in mind that Lot is living in Sodom at this time. So he's, these kings come together. They go in. They defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as was the custom... They have now have everything is theirs. Your kings are mine. Your people are mine. Your land is mine. Everything that you have is now mine because I because I've conquered you. Well, someone gets away and comes and tells Abraham that this has occurred. 
So Abraham gathers up his people and they go to war and they go to war and they actually defeat those kings. So now, again, according to tradition and law, everything belongs to Abraham. Remember, Abraham, who gave up everything to follow God, can now have all of this. It's been promised to him by God. I mean, it's been, God has promised me that all this is mine. Maybe this is how God is planning on giving it to me. I mean, that would make sense. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but you've heard the saying, when God closes, opens one, closes one door, he opens up another one. Or he opens up another window. I would suggest that Abraham is showing us that God does indeed open up another door, but we wait until he tells us to walk through. Because just because the door is open doesn't mean I'm supposed to walk through the door. Abraham chooses rather than do that to wait on God. And how does he do it? He does it because you will notice that the king of Sodom in chapter 14, verse 21 through 24, he said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, young men have eaten, and the share of the, excuse me, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. I think the link between those two scenarios, excuse me, those two accounts, is that Abraham is growing in his faith and trust in God. Which is the next thing I want you to remember. That Abraham grows in faith and trust in God. Amen? Now, you, if you just allow me to hit a few highlights here, and then we'll get to the parallels. So in chapter 15, verse 1, very next chapter it says after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying fear not Abram I am thy shield thy exceeding great reward now I'm reading that verse from the King James version instead of the ESV which is what I was doing earlier and I did that for a specific purpose because it actually captures the essence of what God actually said to him he didn't actually say you're going to have a great reward he said I am your great reward that you knowing me that's your reward. That is your reward. Everything else is just window dressing. I've called you out of darkness into light. And the fact that I've done that, that's your reward. Not that you're going to get a reward. I am your reward. You see, we're not waiting to get to heaven to get a reward. We already got the reward. This is the reward. When we pray, we pray for things. But sometimes I think we just need to pray and say, thank you for being God. Thank you for letting me know that you exist because I too could still be walking in darkness and have no idea that you exist. But the fact that you chose to reveal yourself to me, that is my reward. Amen. 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 So here's what happens. So let me flip over here. So Abraham, oh, I'm sorry, the thing I want you to remember there is that Abraham, that God is Abraham's reward. I forgot to say that. So that's the other thing I want you to remember. God is Abraham's reward. Now, Abraham does ask a couple of questions. Up to this point, he hasn't asked very many questions. But he does say, you do realize that I'm still childless. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have an heir because in that time, if there was another male heir in the family, it didn't have to be his son, that heir would get everything. So I don't have an heir. I am still childless. Yet you're making this promise to me. 
So God says to him, and God says to him, nope, your own son, the son that you will get, Sarah will give birth to, that is going to be your heir. And not only that, your offspring will be as innumerable as stars of heaven. It is going to come through your son. And verse 6 of chapter 15 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Something different about this moment of belief. I don't know other than it was something different because it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, we could say that from the very beginning, he's been believing him because he's been following him. But something happened in this moment. Something happened in this moment that is different than those other times. Some of you have probably experienced that, a place where you can say, I don't actually know when God first entered my life, but I do know when I really started believing him. And Abraham believed him and it was enough to be counted for righteousness. So if I were writing the story, I would expect that from this point forward, Abraham is the man. I mean, I would expect from this point forward, Abraham's life is going to be a straight shot to his heavenly home. But no, they, he didn't ask me to write the story, and that's not the way it turned. That's not the way it worked out. So let me give you a couple of highlights. Shortly after this, shortly after this promise, and he has been counted, his belief has been counted to him as righteousness. His wife says, We need to have a child, and I'm still childless, and there's shame involved in being childless. There's this belief that she's cursed by God because she can't have a child. So she says to Abraham, I'm going to give you my slave girl, Hagar, you give her, have a child with her, and then that will be our heir. Now, again, didn't God just tell him that there's going to be an heir? But nevertheless, Abraham has a, has a child with Hagar. And what happens from there? Hagar, then, according to Sarah, Hagar is, I don't know what you want to call it, I'm going to put it in my words, She's looking at me funny. <laughs> so, so she's holding it over my head. So we need to get rid of her. Now, I have had a child. And if I believe that the heir is that child, why in the world does Abraham say, but it's your slave, it's your servant, do whatever you want to do with her. And they send her away. Her and her infant child. The same Abraham who left his home, who has faith in God who we will see soon will be willing to sacrifice his son. This Abraham, this Abraham is now taking this step in this act. Not only that, there's a point a little bit later in which Abraham is going to show up um, in, in a land where there's a king by the name of Abimelech. And guess what he tells Sarah to do? Oh man, I know you beautiful. <laughs> and they're going to want you. So lie and say you're my sister. Wow. Who does the same sin twice? None of y'all, right? Not me. You know, once I've done it, I'm done with it. Ooh, I'm not ever doing that again. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. You and Abraham and me. Because the walk is imperfect. The walk is an imperfect. There is there is faith is being perfected in an imperfect life. Faith is perfect and it's being perfected in this imperfect life that you and I are living. Oh, thank God for that. Amen. So anyway, so after all of that, 
they, the same story, we get, to, get through the, we get through the t- time with Abimelech, and eventually Sarah does have a child, and the child is Isaac, which brings us to where we started today. And that is that Abraham is now going to the place where God has told him to sacrifice his son. And he's walked to, he's going up there, he's ready to do it. And could anything be more contradictory than God saying, sacrifice Isaac, the very Isaac who is your heir? That you can't be serious. I'm going to pray again, maybe in a different room. I don't know about you. You ever got an answer to your prayer? You're like, oh, that can't be the answer. That, that, that can't be the answer. See, when I said I wanted more patience, I thought I would get up off my knees and be more patient. I didn't know you were going to bring a bunch of folks around me to, to make me impatient so I could learn how to be impatient. Okay, I'm by myself today. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Amen. That's all right. That's all right. In an imperfect life up here. So this is what happens. They go up the mountain and Abraham, as you read at the as I read at the beginning, is willing to sacrifice his son. And Hebrews tells us something about where Abraham is in his walk of faith. Chapter 11, 17 through 19. By faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's the key. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Wow, what growth has happened. Because now he knows that not only, not even death will nullify the promise of God. I don't know what God's plan is, but he is going to make Isaac my heir. Why he's telling me to sacrifice him, I don't know. But I do know that he has promised that he will make him my heir. He has grown in grace. He has grown in the knowledge of God. His faith has increased to a point that he's now able to do what God is commanding him to do. Amen. That's how Abraham became a man of faith. So let's wrap up with this. What are the parallels between his walk of faith and ours? Well, I think it's in those five things that I shared with you. And I want to hit quickly talk about a couple of scriptures related to each of those. He was called out of darkness into God's light. So were we. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not only that, in second, second Corinthians four and six, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We too, like Abraham, were in darkness. Now let me say real quickly something about that darkness. We weren't groping in the darkness. We were living in the darkness. We were living and enjoying the darkness. We weren't in there searching for something other than darkness. No, we were searching and enjoying the darkness. I know that I was, and I feel certain that you were. That you loved the darkness more than the light. And you know how I know that's true? Beside my experience? Because Jesus said it. Chapter 3 of John, verse 19. After walking through, for God so loved the world that, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Which is often where we like to stop, because that's a beautiful scene right there. 
But then he goes from that to condemnation. And then in verse 19, he says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people, you and I, love the darkness rather than the light because our works were evil. This God has called us out of darkness, a darkness that we love, a death that we were complicit in and called us into his marvelous light. And now he calls us friend. That God who has every right to destroy all has called you and I friend. Welcomed us into his family. Just like he did Abraham. Amen. 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 All right. Let me move on. Let me move on. All right. Second thing is he sacrificed the seen for the unseen. So do we. After Paul made note of the fact that our present, I love how he says our momentary light affliction. I don't know if anybody in the audience has ever had momentary affliction or light affliction, but Paul calls it momentary light affliction. After saying that that momentary light affliction is not to be compared with the glory that awaits us. If I could just take a moment and say this, that glory must be glorious. Think about affliction and tell me that when you were in it, it seemed momentary and it seemed light. It didn't. But it is in comparison to what's awaiting us. But here's what he says. As we, going through this life, look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. I want to say this to you. Everything that's happening in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, however it is that you categorize it, is all happening by God's design. All happening by God's design. And it has a purpose. And it's a single, solitary purpose. Conformity to the image of the Son. And he knows everything that I have to go through in order for me to be conformed to that image. And it looks different than what you go through or what you go through or what you go through. But he has uniquely set. He has a unique course for me, just like he does for you, that has a solitary purpose. And that's conforming you to the image of his son. Because you do realize that before the foundation of the world, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And this God who cannot lie. And also has the power to carry out everything that he says he'll do is conforming you to the image of the son. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Darren and I were talking about transparency this a little bit um, before we started today. Unfortunately, all of us, I know I certainly do, fail to share with you my struggle. Which could lead you to believe that my walk is like what you saw of Abraham. When in fact, it looks more like the beginning of Abraham than it does standing on a mountain. And since he has told each of us to weep with those that weep, how can I weep with you if you don't tell me what you're weeping about? How can I pray for you if you don't tell me about your struggles with sin? Because believe it or not, I'm struggling too. And I need somebody next to me that says, yes, me too. I'm struggling with sin also. So that we can together go to the Lord. I got a call last week from my mother when she was traveling that our cousin, her first cousin, my second cousin in our family, cousin can be Uncle Pete. So he was always cousin Pete, even though that's not his name. But anyway, that's a long story. So cousin Pete is in the hospital. I won't share the whole story because it's not necessary. In the hospital, they don't think he's going to make it. 
Period. We are get, we, and his wife is saying, my aunt is saying, we just need to pray. She talked to cousin Pete yesterday on the phone. He no longer on life support. They, they're not feeding through a feeding tube. He can't talk as much as he used to talk, but that's probably a blessing to the people in the room. But I'm just, <laughs> but I'm just saying that this God that we serve, oh, oh yeah. But that can happen for you and me if we share that struggle with each other. Amen? All right, I know I need to wrap up because I, I told you I had two hours worth of material. Let me get finished. The next thing is his walk was imperfect. Our walk is imperfect. First John chapter one, verses eight through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, this verse is not a justification for sinning. It is rather a recognition that your walk is going to be imperfect. But he doesn't leave us there because listen to what, look what we get in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, I love, if anyone does sin or, but when you do, when you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He has made a way in our walk, in this imperfect walk, to be forgiven. Abraham grew in his faith and trust in God. Second Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. And again in Philippians 3.13 and 14 Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. That I have made it my own. And he's talking about perfection. That I've made it my own. But one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We grow in our grace and grace. We grow in our faith. Our walk is imperfect, but we do grow in grace, even through those times. Amen. And finally, I want to end with this. God was his reward. God was his reward. Listen to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That if you want to brag about something, brag about the fact that I am in your life. Faith is being perfected in an imperfect life. When you look at Abraham's journey, there's probably some place along that journey that, that you can say, that's where I am or that's where I've been. That's where I may return again. I hope that you will remember this message. That this is a journey. It is a journey that has ups and downs. There are times when you look like you are, so, you are all in. And then there's other times when you look like I got to do this myself or it won't happen. But God has provided a means for us to get there. Amen. 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 That's all I have. Thank you.